Hi, and welcome to our podcast, To Affinity and Beyond. I'm Pete Denby, co-founder of Hyper and host of the podcast. I'm joined today by David Mannheim. David is a renowned expert on conversion rate optimization and experimentation. And during the podcast, we speak about whether experimentation inhibits or encourages innovation and creativity. We also touch on various other of David's passions. So we talk about creativity more generally. We talk about Manchester United and we talk in detail about Disney. David's a really engaging guy to listen to. I think you'll enjoy the podcast. So without further ado, let's get into the content. So David, hi, welcome to the podcast, to Affinity and Beyond. How are you doing, fellow Southportian? You okay? I'm really well, thanks. I'm really well. Um, excited to have you on the podcast today. I've been following you for a little while on social media now um, and um, find you, some of your opinions fascinating. You talk with great passion and intelligence about your um, subjects. So, you know, I'm sure that'll come through in the discussion today. Maybe one of the two, but yeah, certainly. <laughs> uh, I would describe them as controversial. It's just care, isn't it? I just care about stuff. Yeah. Like my, my old manager once told me um, that there's a big difference between passion and care, and that's always stuck with me. Um, yeah. Passion, you can go something hell for leather. Care is more about an art or craft, you know. Um, yeah. But I do care. Good. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it, I think it really comes through in, in, in some of your musings online, which we will certainly get into. So to kick off, I think you've just alluded to it, actually. I'm, I'm always fascinated with where people are based in the world. I don't know why, but I just am. So you are, where are you sitting right now? You know where I'm sitting. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm in Southport. And I don't think, I think I called you a Southportian, but I don't think that's the correct term, is it? Is it, is it a sand, a sand something? There's a colloquialism for it. It's a sound, a sound grounder. That's but I, my, my wife has told me that the, to be a sound, a sand grounder, your parents must both have been born in Southport too. Right. I'm not a sand grounder then. I, uh, my parents were born in Manchester, so I'm a Manc. I'm a big United fan. Uh, I, when me and my wife were discussing where should we buy our first house, she lives in Southport. I lived in Manchester, and you know I did what every normal human being would do. And that's compromise, aka she wears the trousers. We, we moved to Southport. You lost the argument. Oh, I always lose the argument. There's no point even having discussions sometimes. You, you just sit back and just appreciate yeah. what's about to happen. Um, but yeah, so I live in Southport. The beach is just over there. It's lovely. It's full of old people. Uh, but I, well, I'll, I'll accept that. Apart from me, and, and, and I live about a mile away. You're like I'm the youngest less... person I know here, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I live less than a mile away, <laughs> in fact. And then for anyone listening who isn't familiar with the geography of the UK, Southport is just north of Liverpool and just west of Manchester. So the epicentres for music in the 60s and the 90s, which is pretty cool. Uh, but Southport, yes, is more of a retirement town, I would say. But uh, uh, David and I uh, book the trend, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. I'd say so. Yeah. I'm pleased that you're a United fan as well. I just started watching the United Way on Sky oh, last yeah. night. Have you seen that? Yeah, I found it interesting that they pretty much cut the Roy Keane completely out of the picture. Yeah, <laughs> bless him. Um, yeah, I've watched that and I watched the Fergie one as well on Amazon. Uh, is it Never Give In? Which I th I found really nice. I thought it was slightly more emotional, more historical, mm. um, more about man management. It was uh, it was good. Whereas the United Way was was so nostalgic, uh, I got a bit depressed. 
Yeah, yes, yeah, and it was it was the Cantona show, wasn't it? Really, it was. showcasing Cantona's uh, acting skills. Yeah, uh, but I enjoyed that. He's a god, he's uh, Eric. So uh, you know, I, and I enjoyed the Fergie one. I, I agree yeah, on that. Good. All right, cool. So, um, could you give us a bit of a rundown, uh, David, of your background? Um, you know, work-wise, what what is it that you've done over the course of your career, and and what are you up to now? Potted history. Um, well, you know. Like Peter, when I was younger, I always wanted to be an animator for Disney. So I'm a big Disney fan. And that probably comes through in a lot of my posts. You know, I'm not ashamed to say, Disney, hello, here I am. Uh, let's let's do something together. Um, and I, I, I remember sitting in a store. It's called the Art of Disney Store in a place called Disney Springs. And it was 1995. And they, they sell loads of art. You know, back then there were animated cells. You had a foreground and a background and each were painted one on top of the other. And I remember turning around to my dad and saying, Dad, I was eight, I, re- I, really, want, I really want to be an animator. And my dad shot me down and said, no, you don't. You should do it on computers. That's, that's where the future's at. And Toy Story had just come out uh, in 1995, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And, um, and now I'm neither an animator, I'm not working for Disney, uh, and I'm <laughs> doing nothing but working with computers. So, um, so my animator route <laughs> kind of didn't go to plan. So instead, I, I pursued a career in, um, uh, I wanted to be in advertising because I love the whole Mad Men 1960s, uh, Guinness ads type thing. Uh, and I, I got a grad placement at an ad agency, a cool one in London. And they turned around to me and said, you know what, David, you'd be really good in digital. And I said, nah, I don't want you to pigeonhole me. <laughs> it's, it's really niche. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, they persuaded me to do digital. I did digital. I did the, the typical route of account management to to got interested in UX, and I, I studied psychology back at uni. So human human psychology and behaviour was was fascinating to me. Uh, I started work uh, um, doing CRO, and about three or four years later, after doing a lot of training, thought, hmm, I really like this. I think I could do it better. I'm going to go ahead and start my own agency. And Ergo User Conversion was born. And that was back in Jan 2015. Peter, what a ride it's been. What a ride. Um, and we, we saw the business uh, just three months ago. So, uh, so yeah. Wow. Um, it is quite a story, actually. Um, so, you were what age when you set up the agency? Uh, I'm th- I don't know. I'm 34 now. Six years, 28. Yeah. I was 28. 28. So that's pretty young. So we we've set up a business, a consulting and technology business. But you know, I was I was quite a bit older when I eventually took the plunge. Yeah. So yeah, how how do you how do you uh, gather the courage to do that? Uh, naivety. Nothing but naivety. I you, you just plunge in with two feet and you're you're like it's actually the same time that I moved to Southport. The story goes of. Let's be honest, Southport is not exactly the tech hub of the north, is it? So when we moved to Southport, the uh, <laughs> the, the agreement was, okay, I'll freelance, you know, I'll work from home um, because I'm not commuting to Manchester every bloody day. And um, uh, I got more and more work, hired my first person, Ryan Jordan, um, who became my director, he's still there today, he's like one of my best friends, uh, and he... I ended up commuting to Manchester one day a week. It's like, okay, okay, one day a week, one day I'll commute one day a week. And I got another person. Fine, I'll commute two days a week then, two days. 
And then, oh God, by, by like the end of year two, I had 16, 18 staff and I was commuting every bloody day. So it, I lost the ability to work from home and it was actually only COVID that really brought it back for me and working from home because I was forced to. Um, so yeah, but uh, they should they should tear down some of the care homes here. Don't quote, don't quote me on that, <laughs> but replace them, like like improve the, the tech infrastructure within Southport because there's not much here, let me tell you. I could. I, I I was actually introduced um, to the um, CEO of the Southport Business Hub recently, actually, who's looking to set up some um, form of kind of tech ecosystem. Oh, wow. okay. So I, I must in, I must introduce. Well, we've you. only just got internet yeah. here, so we're... <laughs> he's going to struggle. <laughs> yeah, still on <laughs> dial-up. Um, and so um, you know the the the, um, the whole industry around um, CRO uh, is. I find very interesting, but I think to a lot of people who are not involved, it's probably a little bit, um, you know, full of acronyms mm. and, you know, not an industry that a lot of people um, in general might understand. So could you just tell us a little bit about, you know, what CRO is, what what it involves, you know, what, what um, examples um, to bring it See, to life it's, a little bit? It's a bit of a dirty word, I think, just because it, first of all, the term itself, CRO, Conversion Rate Optimization. 99 times out of 100, we're not optimizing conversion rates. We're optimizing experiences, or we're just improving our knowledge, or we're basically adding rigor to our opinions. So, so effective research, experimentation, and fantastic solution design to allow us to, to improve something, right? It's as simple as that. So it's just either, some people have called it CX, Customer Experience Optimization, or CXM, or just optimization. So I think the term itself is a bit odd, uh, but that's been laboured on for, for years now. And when I originally, um, my, my thought process of starting user conversion was, you know what, SEO, about five years ago, this soon, 2010-ish, that had a dirty association to it as well, you know, a lot of black art, black hat techniques. And what SEO decided to do is diversify into individual specialisms. So it wasn't just... Uh, an SEO manager anymore. It was a keyword analyst. It was a content manager. It was, here are my kids. Uh, it was a, hey Max, I'm just doing a podcast, buddy. So I'll see you later. <laughs> Hi, Max. We'll do something. We're talking about CRO. We're going to a park. We're going to a park, apparently. It's, it's like that Sky, oh, okay. uh, sky interview, isn't it? Uh, you didn't see my wife this time crawling to get my son. So yeah, so, so SEO had this dirty connotation and diversified into all these individual specialisms. I felt exactly the same as to where CRO was going, i.e. I didn't believe, and I still do not, that a single CRO manager uh, can be this unicorn for all these uh, very specific specialisms from analytics to UX design to UX research to code and experiments or having technical and commercial analysis at the same time and therefore set up user conversion with the proposition of uh, CRO isn't a specialism, it's a series of specialisms. And that stayed with us ever since. It still is our proposition, even with Brain Labs, uh, the Brain Labs acquisition. So yeah, for me, CRO is a series of specialisms. It's actually more of a mindset than a discipline. It's just the opportunity to grow, to learn, to improve something. 
Okay, so presumably it could be extended beyond um, digital properties. Then, um, you know, you can see why it's big in in you know web optimization and and, and mobile and and, uh, and that kind of thing because it's maybe easier to um, set up experiments and, and to measure. But you could take that mindset much far beyond that if you're looking at experience optimization. Then that could be in any um, any situation, really, any any channel and any point of interaction with a with a user Absolutely or a consumer. Absolutely, I mean, you don't have to experiment in order to optimize. You know, it's just when we're talking about optimization, it's just about adding rigor to to a research, a process, a methodology to improve something. And experimentation just so happens to be a very good practical way of validating whether your opinion, your theory, your hypothesis is correct or not. Simple as that. Okay. And where have you seen it done well? So are there any brands that you've worked with um, that are particularly prominent um, or that you've seen, you know, independently that, that do um, optimization really yeah, successfully? I mean, those who optimize very well, so who are very mature, tend to also experiment. So the higher the experimentation maturity within the organization, generally the mindset of optimization is just inherent within the business. It's the foundation of the business. So everybody always mentions booking.com because they have uh, X hundred employees. They have their own floor, I think, in Amsterdam dedicated to optimization. They, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, uh, but they test, it's like a nano rillion or something, something that even I can't comprehend. Uh, a number of tests per year, uh, different combinations. So everyone always mentions booking.com, but I, I find it I find it fascinating that there are some companies that should get a mention. The Gustos of the world, the Bloom and Wilds of the world, where their entire organization is almost built on data. I think the, the Gusto CEO puts in his LinkedIn profile, we're a data company that sells food example i think that's really nice and those types of companies that have that mindset of optimization first you very user centricity now very user centric they're the ones that are, are more mature in their practice um, yeah i think these um businesses that have been built on data so you mentioned some good ones there gusto and i've, I've heard people from gusto talk before and i think they come across re really impressive when they, they tell their story um yeah bloom and wild who've got a, a great business model as, as well i think it's simple when you think about it but they you know they execute it really well and then some of the largest most successful companies in the world you know the googles and you know face facebook love them or hate them um you know there's uh, some of the most uh, successful most of the most successful companies in the world nowadays really have, have been built on data and you know and that trend will only continue so um take people like um so all the tech companies i find it fascinating peter all the tech companies test everything before anything's released they test it google are famous for testing 51 shades of blue for example microsoft are famous for testing um like algorithms within bing or any kind of thing that's pushed to production and do you know yeah. microsoft nine out of ten times they fail so an experiment actually fails that means that only one time out of ten so ten percent of the anything that's um developed is efficient or effective um, to, to a KPI, to a metric. And I just find that fascinating that all the tech companies tend to have this level of approach. But the other companies, you know, the retail companies, the FMCG companies, travel companies, they're just a bit behind on the, on the trend of, of having really effective research 
to, to understand what works and what doesn't work or effective measurement protocols or um, you know, experimentation, kind of practical tests to understand efficiency and effectiveness of things that are published. Why don't we follow the tech companies? Uh, yeah, why don't they? I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know whether, um, uh, don't clip this one up, but I don't know whether it's an ages thing. I don't know whether there's there's a tradition there. I don't know whether quarterly results trump uh, the need for creativity, for innovation, for a continuous improvement. Um, so for uh, risk, for example, I, I don't know whether risk sometimes trumps the need for for those types of practices. And what's ironic is that experimentation is designed to mitigate risk. You know, it's designed to yeah. validate. Um, but it's, I, I, my personal opinion is that it's also seen as very slow. It's another process to achieve something, which is a fallacy because experimentation actually makes you more agile. Um, it, doesn't, mm. it doesn't slow things down. It improves the efficiency. So over a longer period of time, you're actually um, you're faster in your decision-making ability because you know what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, and I think there's a lot in that, and um, you know, I definitely have a theory about a lot of more traditional companies are, are still run by, um, you know, people who've been around a while, kind of middle age, um, you know, middle aged men in in general, and I think they a lot of the time they find it difficult to adapt to a more modern uh, business mindset. Um, and I think when the next generation of leaders come through, you'll see, um, you know, a wholesale change in the way that um, some of these these companies, the ones that are still around, approach business and, and use, um, you know, and use uh, optimization, use data, use analytics in, in a more successful way. But I think that's part of the problem. It's it's um, people afraid of the new and afraid of the unknown. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, I, and I think a lot of the time, the more um, agile um modern thinking business leaders are um outmaneuvering some of these more traditional companies I, th- I think there's something in that as well and i think there is definitely a risk piece as well um you know traditional uh, businesses it's, financial services is an interesting area to think about actually so they've been seriously risk averse yeah, um, but i think there's but that exactly but they're seeing the they're seeing the competition come down the track with these um, kind of so-called challenger banks and um, I think they're kind of waking up to the fact that they need to change and you know they often tell a good story um, you know not working in in any of these big financial institutions I'm not sure how authentic it is and how mm. um, how you know how much they have the ability to change to meet this uh, this threat that's coming their way it's fascinating because we'll I think obviously as humans we we fear catastrophe. You know, there, there are many more ways to die than there are to survive, aren't they? Uh, mm. And we know, we know we want something that's pretty good, but we definitely know that we don't want something that's terrible. So we're generally conditioned to safety mm. in what we know and what we don't know. And we, we, we do it because we avoid fear. Um, so I, I think that's why sometimes innovation is, is stifled. Uh, and I think experimentation can help us, help us overcome that barrier, for example. Uh, and I think the likes of, I mean, we mentioned Revolut and Monzo, let's go for some different ones. Uh, let's go for Dollar Shave Club, you know, who have a big, big fingers up to, to Gillette, these huge corporations that are monoliths and, and greedy and arrogant in their market share and say, you know what, I'm going to disrupt your market through an innovative pricing uh, strategy or the likes of um, all the mattress companies. 
you know, who did it first? It wasn't Simba, was it? It wasn't Casper. It was uh, it was one of them that did it first. Basically saying, why are mattresses so awful to carry, to, to install, to order, to return? Like, surely there's a better way here. And I, I just find that that notion of disruption and innovation and uh, fascinating. And I believe, my theory is that people avoid risk, you know, because we, we fear that catastrophe. So the safety in, this is what we're doing, we're doing it well, and we'll iterate as opposed to innovate. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I would agree with that theory. I would agree with that. And I think that kind of leads us nicely into the main topic that we're going to talk about today, um, which is really around um, experimentation and does it inhibit, inhibit or encourage um, innovation and uh, creativity. So just to help frame this then, um, so the, the two parts to this, experimentation and creativity. So experimentation, in your mind, how would you define that in, in this context? Experimentation is all about validation. So it's a practical test, just in uh, the way the pharmaceutical industry, I mean, they're, they're generally the, the, the masters of it, uh, would uh, test a particular variable uh, or, or a hypothesis to see if it's true or not true. So in the world of, um, I don't know, in the, in the world of uh, booking.com, uh, let's go Amazon. In the world of Amazon, you know, they tested whether uh, Prime was a good thing or a bad thing. Do users want it? Do they not want it? Does it affect this KPI or does it not? So experimentation is just a practical way of, of validating uh, a variable, an attribute. Okay, cool. And creativity. So again, in this context, how, how would you define creativity? I once read that creativity is a habit. And I think that's a really nice way of, of describing it. Creativity is uh, is neither a discipline nor, nor a mindset. I actually think it's more conceptual than both of those things. And uh, when we talk about experimentation inhibiting or, or encouraging innovation or creativity, I, think, I don't think you're actually going to get to an answer because I think the concept of creativity is so broad that... Uh, that experimentation as a methodology and when you append it to creativity i.e a concept that there are various uh, subjective definitions of what creativity is and what it should be so um so i don't know how long have you got uh, creativity for me is is more more it's a conceptual habit you know it's not whether some people have it or they don't everybody has a level of creativity Okay. All right. And, and, and let's get going to the debate a little bit then. Um, so about whether it, it inhibits or encourages um, innovation and creativity. So what, what are sure. the, what are the, uh, some of the arguments for and against? Well, let's, let's do against, let's, let's do four, because I think four is, is probably easier. So um, there's, a, there's a book, uh, I've read it somewhere, by Stephen Tomkey, and he's written two books, uh, to my knowledge. Experimentation Works and Experimentation Matters. And the Works one is the latest one. And he highlights seven myths within that book. The very first myth of that is that um, the, the myth number one about experimentation is that it inhibits innovation. Uh, and uh, he argues that it completely encourages innovation. And it's not that I disagree with that at all. I think experimentation, so when you're testing something, it validates something, you know, it encourages the creative process because it, it allows you to understand whether something works or something doesn't work. When it works really well is when you explore 
from that um, that thing, that experiment, rather than just uh, validate from it. So does it work or doesn't it work? Yes or no, but why? Why didn't this drug, this, you know, this, this um, COVID drug work against the coronavirus? For example, mm. and then that's when you start to explore. There's a famous story about Spencer Stilber, who was the the creator of the Post-it note, and he argues that he would never have created the Post-it note had he done not done an experiment around the adhesive that created the Post-it note itself. Um, if he actually argues that if he would have sat down and thought about it beforehand, he would never have got to the end result. And there are plenty of stories where experimentation encourages the creative process to the extent where it achieves an outcome. It achieves that thing, uh, the, you know, the, the, the end product. I mean, you look at what's in front of me at the moment, it's a nice shiny Mac. You know, how, did, how was the Mac created? How did Steve Jobs do it? I mean, what's fascinating is, did he test? Did he experiment when he created the Mac? I don't know the answer to this. But the Mac is certainly an iteration of an innovation. Right. What I see in front of me is like the 30th or probably the 9,000th iteration of an original innovation. And that was done through experimentation. You know, does the battery component improve or, or, or deteriorate um, the, the, the speed? You know, the, the fact that they've moved from Intel chip to Intel chip to Intel chip to M1 processor, for example. I find that fascinating. They've done, done that through experimentation. However, sorry, go ahead. Well, I, I, there's, there's something burning within me, which I actually feel that experimentation can misrepresent. And I, I feel there's a, there's a place for intuition. And I'm not sure whether experimentation hinders um, creativity and innovation more than it encourages it. It's my working theory. <laughs> and in, in what way? Uh, why, why do you feel it inhibits innovation well look do you think users know what they want you know the famous henry j Ford quote if i would have asked users what they want they would have asked for faster horses um there's a famous steve jobs quote which is people told us over and over again they don't want to rent the music they don't want subscriptions well that therefore means that if spotify would have done their research or experimented then it would have never been created the same with itunes or at least the, the rented portion of itunes I don't know whether users know what they want at times. I don't know whether innovation can prevent that, for example. There's a, there's a famous story of, um, of Walmart, and they, they posed a survey. This was, was way back in the day. They posed a survey to all, the, all their customers, and their customers came back, and they analyzed the survey, basically said, we, we want less clutter within the store. Walmart, Walmart did that. And in, in doing so, in the process, they lost about 1.85 billion in sales over the course of a year. And so I don't know whether users actually know what they want. Uh, you know, do you think they would have said, uh, we want to be able to land on the moon? Do you think they would have said, we want reusable rockets, a la, you know, Elon Musk, Tesla, mm. SpaceX? So I, I find it fascinating is that, do users know what they want? And is that because they don't know what they don't know? You know, they don't know that reusable rockets are a thing. They don't know the solar panels on, on houses are a thing. They, they, they don't know. Uh, when the BBC um, redesigned their homepage quite famously in 2015, it got a slew of <laughs> feedback. But that became the thing, you know, that kind of responsive, uh, widgetized 
process uh, to, to, to design a, a page, specifically a homepage, became, I would argue, it was an innovation. The same with Gov.uk. You know, when Gov.uk um, got redesigned, they had a slew of negative feedback. But bloody hell, it won. Um, what's the, the design award that they give out every year? It won that, and that radically changed accessibility for, for all websites. So I just don't know whether users don't know what they don't know, and therefore I argue, how do you experiment practically against something when that's the case? Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's what, what's the nice balance, I guess? I mean, it sounds like, you know, experimentation should be a great toolkit, a great tool to put in your toolkit to encourage innovation and creativity. Yeah. But if you follow it blindly, then you probably won't do some of the things that could make could be a real success. So it's, it's, it's how you balance that um, approach to kind of free thinking, um, but more hard data and asking customers and of course with a you know such a big movement to towards customer centricity and you know um, doing everything based on customer feedback to your point what if the customer feedback is we don't want this thing but if you actually launch it or you're even worse your competitor launches it and then it takes off and it's a huge success so how do you get that balance but i also find we're totally preconditioned as as humans to knowing what we know or have an experience of experience. Let's say me and you sat down and said, you know, Peter, I want to, I want to design a new house. Or we give, we give a survey or a focus group to people to design a new house. I guarantee all those people will draw a door, a triangle roof and four windows and a box. And that's because we're, we're preconditioned to knowing what we know. And there are techniques and tactics and strategies to get us outside of um, the, the Fabulous chap called Duncan Wardle, who uh, a bit of a fanboy of, he was the ex-head of innovation and creativity at Disney, but he calls this thing the river of thinking, you know, your, your conditioned way of how you think and how you create stuff. Uh, and there are techniques to get outside of that river of thinking. One method of which is, um, he coins it as a naive expert, i.e. you bring somebody in who doesn't know anything to do with, say, houses, maybe someone from, um, you know, uh, who who hasn't had that level of life or hasn't uh, experienced what a house is to draw a house and you describe it to them and you don't even call it a house for example you know it's, it's almost like me starting my own agency and um, to be fair i already worked in all agencies that's probably not a good example but i did call myself naive before steadily starting a business i made mistakes along the way you learn from those mistakes but they weren't experiments i just did them um so we're certainly preconditioned certainly preconditioned and therefore, it's not just do we not do we know what we don't know, but it's also what we know, we stick within what we know. <laughs> and anything that we know, you know, that's our safety blanket. And we go back to our discussion of fear before or, you know, there are many more ways to die than to survive. So mm. Step outside of that is, is scary. To be yeah, I think a lot of that comes back to the way people are educated. Um, I'm fascinated to see how, I mean my kids are coming up to school age so mm. I'm fascinated to see um, what their education looks like but if I think back to mine it was you know one size fits all this is the way you need to do things it didn't cater for different ways of um, different styles of learning oh, well, I didn't yeah. find it I didn't find it great to be honest I you know school uh, you know I struggled with the the studying aspect and you know even though I've kind of gone on to, to do some decent stuff but I think it's just it suited a particular type of person and you were conditioned to think in a certain way and I think it is um 
and I think in my definitely my early career as well. Um, I, I, I was certainly conditioned to doing things a certain way, and even the companies that I worked for taught a certain way of doing things, which was great in some respects, but awful in terms of being creative and um, being able to think for yourself. Um, and it's only over recent years that I've, you know, uh, discovered some of the people that you've, you've um, similar to who you've talked about. So Edward de Bono would be another one with his, you know, six thinking hats and his, you know, various others. Um, people who talk about creativity and talk about changing your thought process. Mm. But, um, you know, I've had to kind of seek those those people out over time. Um, and then um, I think when you do that, it opens up a, a whole new world, really. And you, you can um, start to you know, question the standard way of doing things and, and do things differently. And also if you, you know, this is the, this is the, the challenge, isn't it? If there's ways that you've always seen of doing things, it's, it's um, like starting your own agency. If you model that on other agencies, then you're going to be really similar. So it's going to be very difficult to stand out with um, potential clients. Whereas if you go into it naively and you think about, okay, so these are the types of problems I want to solve for a client and I'm going to do it in this way and, you know, almost forget about everything that's gone before that would hopefully set you apart. Um, so, uh, you know, I think there's definitely a thing about um, being able to forget what's gone before or forget everything, you know, and then, you know, try and design from scratch. I agree. I, I think I find it from a web optimization point of view. So let's take it back to, to web design, to UX, to CRO. Um, all Product detail pages look the same with an e-commerce. Big image on the left, information on the right, big buy now button, information below the fold, etc., etc. Uh, I think that's designed from, say, Amazon, and we're so conditioned to using Amazon that again, we 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 base our experiences based on what we know in our security blankets, uh, and therefore to step outside of that is both very difficult for us as solution designers to conceive, but also be. Um, users who react to it uh, very much in the same way with the BBC homepage will, uh, will I'd, I would assume, react negatively to something incredibly radical because they're not conditioned to that way of working or that way of thinking. Mm. And therefore, could that be considered a success or a failure? If you were to experiment with that, such a radical, um, I, I'm going to call it a vision and I'll come back to that. If you experiment with that radical vision, you're most likely going to get negative feedback because of what I've just said. And there's a really good talk on YouTube by the head of product, uh, I think it was, I think it's at YouTube or at Google, and talks about versioning, visioning, and venturing, where uh, versioning is the iteration of something, you know, it's the changing of a color of a button, it's the movement of something from left to right. Um, venturing is, uh, venturing's over here, venturing is your moonshot landing, you know, it's it's the Google Glasses of the world. It's the uh, it's the AR application of something, and um, visioning is is the redesign, is the BBC homepage. You know, is something that that's radical and sits in between the two. Uh, and I find that fascinating the way you you react to different things. I just think as users, we're conditioned to each of those things, so it's it's, it's hard, as Duncan Wardle says, to step outside your river of thinking. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. So this uh, it's a fascinating topic, um, and p presumably this is something that you're going to muse on in your some of your uh, publishing online. Yeah, as well. I, I tend to write an article for every for publish every Friday, and I have a Substack. Uh, if you want to follow it, it's optimization.substack.com, I think, or something. Um, but I, I tend to do things in series, and this series, I'm I'm going to be completely honest, is all about creativity and innovation, and it is by way and far 
the most important thing to me. It's one of my core values is creativity. And it all harps to back to that conversation with my dad about how he stifled my creativity, damn him, uh, <laughs> by forcing me into this digital era uh, and not, not to pursue my desire to be an animator. <laughs> oh, there's still time. Yeah, there's I'm, still I'm, time. Maybe that's next. It's just a big change. I'm, I'm not conditioned to it. <laughs> it's an adventure <laughs> for me. You know, it's not a version. Uh, yeah, I'm probably scared. Um, it's a big change. It's a big, big change. Um, maybe. Okay, and something else that I definitely want to cover on the podcast is Disney. So talk, talk to me about your fascination <laughs> with Disney. Are you, if you asking the therapist within me or are you asking just me? Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> um, fascination with Disney. So, uh, look, like, long story short, we've got family over there uh, in Orlando. So we've got family in Orlando. Um, what do you do when you've got family in Orlando and you've got a kid? You, you go to Disney. So we went there every year. I was very, very fortunate. And I just got grew, I grew up around it. We had a home over there and it's just literally a second home. Um, but the fascination, uh, the way it's tinkered over time, you know, the therapist within me, or my actual therapist would say it's a lost childhood. Uh, <laughs> um, but me, myself, I would just say it's an expression of creativity. Um, I, I find mm. the culture fascinating. I, I find, you know, I'm the type of person that sits up to about 2 a.m. to listen to their quarterly earnings uh every every three or four months um yeah i i just find it oh, it's my happy place it's my calm place and i'm the type of person that i'll watch an animated film and i'll try and figure out how they did it and you know what what t uh, techniques they use to do certain things and i don't know all of this but i'm really interested in finding out so for me it's the process mm. like did you know um, the way they create an animated film, so specifically in Pixar, they'll have these things called storyboards. Okay, so they'll they'll sketch out basically the entire film, and then they can move it around just as you would post it on a wall. And when they did Toy Story, they did nine thousand, nine thousand individual elements, rough sketches to create create Toy Story. Over the years, that's increased over time because they found that by doing more storyboards it improves the efficiency of the film, both in terms of cost and in terms of time and resource. So when they released their most recent one, Soul, do you know how many storyboards they did? 90,000. Wow. So 10 times what <laughs> wow. they've originally done. Um, that's a version of iteration. That's how you optimize a process. But um, yeah, yeah, I mean, a venture version of that would be how do you eradicate, how might we eradicate storyboards altogether? Or how might we even release mm. a film that's just based on storyboards? Who knows? Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's, it's a fascinating um, organization, isn't it, really? Um, I've heard, um, is it Bob Iger, who's the, is he the um, chief executive or chairman, was, yeah. the main guy, anyway? He um, speaks very uh, eloquently about the um, the business and what they achieved and, you know, how they've embraced other companies like... Um, uh, Pixar and bringing them into the fold, so well worth well worth seeking out any anything that he's on. Uh, and what about the Disney band, the wristband? Because you know we're a we're a you know data yeah. analytics business. Uh, I, I I I went to Disney a couple of years ago, and um, our eldest daughter was a little bit younger, and um, before our second daughter, 
and uh, we didn't have the wristbands. I, I loved it, by the way. I thought Disney was was magical. But yeah, what, what the wristbands and the 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 data collection and how well, they think, use that. How does about, that, all that um, so back in I think it's about 2015. Um, you've got a, you've got a problem, and your problem is uh, we get 20,000 people to an individual park every single day, and we have no idea what they do apart from some random sampling of a qualitative survey. So uh, the the head of the park operations at the time grouped together five people called the Fab Five, which is a heart back to like Mickey, Donald, Goofy, um, Minnie and uh, Donald. Testing my knowledge there. And said, right, I want you to solve <laughs> this problem. Uh, we have all these problems of people with giant broadsheet maps and uh, people waiting queues for too long. And they know, for example, for reference, Peter, the more you wait in the queue, the less likely you are to spend money in the park because you're waiting in a queue. So if we free up that time for you, you, you've got nothing else to do but to spend money in our merch and our shops. And they flew the Fab Five back and forth from California and Anaheim to Orlando, back to California, back to Orlando. And they found, uh, you know, on the Sky Mag magazines, they found this, this piece of inspiration on Sky Mag magazine, which was uh, a wristband for, uh, to track golf swings. Um, and it was based off RFID. It was a bit like how Nike Plus worked. And they were fascinated by that technology. And Ergo set off on a venture to say, how might we use this technology on our parks? And they created this thing called a magic band. And the magic band is something that sits on your wrist. It uh, links to an app that allows you to fast pass, i.e. skip queues. It allows you to open up your hotel room. It allows you to make book dining reservations and, and booking, all with the intention of A, freeing up your time from the queues, but B, probably more importantly, they know what you're doing in the parks. Is data collection ran perfectly. Uh, you know, what's an alternative way of doing that? It's probably cameras everywhere using base tracking ID or something the way mm -hmm. an Amazon um, grocery store would work in London, for example. Um, I find that to be uh, for me, obviously, but one of the greatest innovations of the past 10 or 20 years, because it solves so many problems, mm. but probably the biggest problem of what the hell do our users do in our park or our guests do in our park? Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating, fascinating from a data and analytics really point of view. Is. So we'd also love to work with Disney. <laughs> Disney, if you're, <laughs> if you're out there, yeah. <laughs> if you're out there, <laughs> come and see us in Southport. <laughs> um, all right, cool. That's a, I think that's a really good point to uh, um, to end on. Um, so you mentioned Substack. People can find you on there. Whereabouts? Uh, where else do you publish your uh, LinkedIn? Um, just follow me. On, follow me on LinkedIn or something. Um, and yeah, I, I also have like a medium. But if I'm honest, at the moment it's all it's all tranched. Uh, it's all the same throughout all of them. Um, but look, I'm just a dude who takes a great amount of care. Uh, and add, likes to add value wherever I can. I don't care if I'm right or I'm wrong. It's just an opinion, you know? That's the beautiful world that we live in. It's completely contextual. Everything that I could have said there, you might perfectly disagree with. The magic band might be a big brother mechanism to, uh, to see what you're doing. But for me, it's a wonderful piece of innovation that solves many problems. Fantastic. Well, I think you talk with great care and eloquence. So uh, I'm delighted that you came on the podcast. Thank you. And uh, hopefully see you in Southport yeah, for a beer we'll sometime a soon. Yeah, we'll get That sounds good. Excellent. Right, great. Thanks, David. Cheers, Peter.
My thanks to David Mannheim for joining our podcast today. When I asked David to join the podcast uh, via a telephone call, we had the serendipitous moment of realizing that although speaking on the phone, we were actually less than a mile away from each other um, in the sleepy Northwest Seaside Resort of Southport. So uh, it was great to share that in common too. I think David has a clear um, passion and knowledge around conversion rate optimization and experimentation and also shows a real deep passion for all things Disney and a variety of other topics. So it was great to have David on the podcast today. If you'd like to find out more about what Hypergroup does and how we use data, analytics and insight to help uh, retailers and consumer brands to understand their customers' behavior and needs and to make more unified, coordinated customer-led decisions, please do get in touch either directly via myself, Peter at hyper-group.co.uk or check out our website, which is www.hyper-group.co.uk. Thanks for listening and please join us again next time.